Hey there, welcome back to another episode of the Will and Rob Show. It is great to be with you all. My name is Robert. I'm a ministry associate with Ministry of State. I am here with the birthday boy and my good friend, Will Stockdale, also a ministry associate with Ministry of State. Will, happy birthday. Thank you. Today, well, as we record, December 16th is in fact the day of my birth. Yes, yes. Thank you for, for remembering and for saying that. Of course, we, we need something to celebrate. Um, we are going to be doing a, a fun episode today. We're going to be doing uh, a 2020 in review since this will be our last episode of the year before we come back uh, after the Christmas break. Um, we w- really wanted to spend some time uh, discussing everything that we saw happen in 2020. And in many ways, it was a, a, a chaotic year. There was a lot going on, some of it not so worthy of celebration. Um, but at the same time, it was also the year that we started this show. Uh, I started in uh, ministry. Um, it was, so there, there's a lot to be thankful for. Um, and at the same time, I think it, it, would, it would do us well to really spend some time in reflection about what happened, uh, the trends that we saw, um, that we sort of spent the year discussing, but kind of wanted to, to recap here. Will, as I look back on it, I see really three um, main pillars of 2020. I see uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I see uh, the George Floyd protests uh, and really the, the social justice and racial justice movement that uh, accompanied it. Um, and then I also see uh, the 2020 election uh, that we just uh, went through uh, and actually kind of got the final uh, closure on recently with uh, the Electoral College officially voting Joe Biden as the president-elect. So um, I kind of wanted to take in some time going through each point there um, and kind of getting your thoughts about some stuff and then maybe uh, having a couple debates. But um, let's start with the pandemic. Uh, our very first episode back on March 25th, was titled First Show and Coronavirus. And so it was our first time really doing the podcast, but also the first time really talking about what was going on in the pandemic. And I guess let's start with this. I mean, what do you remember at the beginning of the pandemic? And how, how did that sort of shape your understanding of what we were going to go through? And then how did you see that change over the course of a year? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually just went and grabbed lunch with a friend at their house, at his house. And uh, I was walking back and I saw some kids walking with their mom with like a sled and a bunch of snow. uh, And they were obviously excited to be out in the snow. And I remember when, I mean, uh, when COVID first started, one of the questions was, you know, is this going to be a little bit of a, like a, a, a quick snow? Is it going to be um, a blizzard is going to be like a whiteout blizzard. And so there are these questions about how long this was going to last and what it meant and what the implications were going to be for this long term. And uh, it turns out, I mean, it, it's certainly a blizzard. And I mean, the questions of what are the implications of a whiteout and how things change things for us going into the future. Um, but I, I, I think I remember, <laughs> I did not even fathom that this was going to last nine, 10 months, a year. I was convinced that it was going to be three weeks probably. And then we were going to get back to normal. And so I just, I never been more wrong about something (laughs) for such a long time in my life. I just completely. And so I think that is um, 
the biggest change. I thought that it was going to be kind of a fun change. It was going to be like a snow day. It was going to be stay at home for like two weeks and kind of see what it looks like for DC to be empty. And then we'll get back to normal. I mean, it was 15 days to flatten the curve and right. that is not what happened at all. Right. Um, so yeah, just the, the, the unexpectedness of it. And I will say it is kind of fun um, to think about, even though uh, kids have basically had snow days for the last nine months, there's still, it is still fun to see kids excited to be outside playing in the snow. There is still that childlike wonder and imagination of just loving to play in the cold slush. Yeah, that's great. What about uh, you? So, yeah, I think when way back in March when we recorded that episode and when we were, I know having conversations about what coronavirus meant for um, our ministry and, and what we were doing. I mean, I, I do really remember thinking like, it's a serious issue, but it'll take three weeks to really flatten the curve. You know, we will be fine and we'll kind of come out of it into the, into the late spring and we'll be, we'll be good to go. Um, I actually think the, the, thing that made it more real to me was when March Madness canceled. I felt like that was like really uh, an indicator. That was really much an indicator that this was a very serious issue and people were treating it very seriously. Um, uh, and then I remember in Virginia, uh, Governor Northam issued a, a stay at home mandate, uh, a shutdown mandate until this was in like March or April. I shut down until mid June. And that's when I was like, well, this is getting out of hand. Um, what, what's going on here? And I, I think from there, you really saw quickly, especially in the summertime, how the COVID-19 pandemic became not really an issue of um, public health and really became a political partisan question. It almost became part of the culture war in many ways. Um, the, uh, Ross Douthat makes this point really well, which is that when he says at the very beginning of the pandemic, we, we need to remember that it was sort of like the, the uh, hard writers who were the ones that were treating it super seriously. I mean, they were the ones that were sort of like, the government's not going to treat this important, you know, as an important issue. We're going to wear masks. It was sort of like part of, part of being the counterculture. And then it quickly flipped. Um, because it became essentially a matter of, of, you know, what Americans always like to turn things into, which is individual liberty and personal rights and, and freedoms. And so, um, and I think, I think honestly, you could say that the crux of that argument was, did the mandate, did the shutdowns extend to the church? And when the church became the focus of uh, the state's uh, objectives, I think that really sort of switched uh, in, the, in people's minds what the pandemic was all about because then it became an issue of religious liberty, personal freedom. You know, the government can't come tell me what I can and can't do in my, in my private house of worship and, and what have you. And so, um, and then I think in, in, in all things, right. Like you get the backlash from that, right. You get the, the people who say, you know, you know, no, that's, that's not what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to love our neighbors. And if it means we're not meeting in person, um, then that's then so be it, and I so I think that argument sort of uh, uh, ran its course through the remainder of the year. Yeah, and I, with with COVID, as we continue talking about these other issues, the George Floyd um, uh, George Floyd death, and then the uh, fallout from that, and the twenty twenty elections, 
COVID has provided the backdrop. I mean, COVID is not just one thing that can be talked about alongside other issues. It is the background noise. It is the, uh, it, it's the stage for this year that everything else has been set against. And uh, that's, that's something that um, has, it, it has colored and tinted everything that we think about. And, and I, like you mentioned with churches, they, the way that, that churches have responded or um, restrictions that have been placed on churches has definitely been a huge story in 2020. And people wondering what's going to be the future of worship and gathering in person is also uh, up in the air still. Yeah. And I, I think if, if we wanted to spend some time projecting it into 2021, um, so obviously the first round of vaccines are going out um, this week. We are uh, going into a Christmas break uh, where there, there will be a lot of people traveling, uh, uh, regardless of how people feel about that. Um, we are in, a, in a, a time when people tend to get sick and, and there are colds and flus and, and things like that. I think, you know, we really got to think about, well, what's, what's the impact of this pandemic going into 2021 and maybe even further. And, you know, I think it's safe to say that uh, being in lockdown and, and essentially afraid of a virus for as long as we've been, uh, I think will have lasting psychological, um, even physical uh, ramifications on people. I think it's, you know, I think it's safe to say that our generation will <laughs> always be the hand sanitizer generation. Um, that will kind of always be something we have, you know, in the car, uh, when you come into the house, the first thing you do is sanitize. And I, I think that's just part of, you know, who will be, it's kind of like how the, the, the folks who lived through the great depression became, you know, penny pinchers and, and, um, all that kind of stuff. I, I think that, that we'll have, you know, that's one sort of more lighthearted example. Um, I do think that it's, it's safe to say that there will be a lot of people that unfortunately will always be really scared and afraid. Or, or just maybe think twice about going out and being in public with other people. Um, I, I worry about how the pandemic and being shut in this long will affect um, how we view our neighbor and how we view the person we run into across the street. Will we instantly think, hey, this is somebody I can serve or somebody I can care for or somebody that I can be kind to, or is it going to be somebody that I'm afraid of? Um, and I think that's something that I'm, I'm interested to see w what happens in the future. Um, and then obviously I, I have no predictions about what happens in terms of the, uh, in terms of the vaccine, um, what people will do, whether people will take it or whether they won't, um, the effects of whether or not people do or don't. I know I'm already seeing sort of the groundwork being laid by many people uh, who say, yeah, even if we do get the vaccine and you know, enough people get vaccinated, we still uh, should prepare to <laughs> basically stay locked up for a certain amount of time afterwards. And so I, I think, you know, that's going to become a huge debate um, going into the new year. I, I also, I think we need to also consider the fact that President-elect Joe Biden has, I think, already indicated that he's he's willing to sign a, a national mask mandate as part of his 100-a-day agenda. Um, and uh, what that will entail, what that will mean. Um, so, I, yeah, I think, I think that's sort of what I'm looking at in terms of 20, going into 2021 about the pandemic, I think we could sit here and play Monday morning quarterback all day about, you know, what we should have done, what we shouldn't have done, whether certain policies were um, appropriate or not. Uh, I do think that uh, there is a lot of feedback coming from both the left and the right um, about 
you know, once we do get to a position where we can sort of objectively look back at what policies we decided to do, you know, are there going to be people that need to be held, held accountable for those decisions? I don't know. So. I think, yeah, Christians, we need to be aware and, and pay attention to how this is affecting our own mental health, uh, how this is affecting the way that um, we are able to, to, to pray, uh, to think uh, well and deeply. And when things do open up, I kind of wonder, is it going to be like us snapping out of a dream? Is there going to be this sense in which our kind of eyes are opened again, where they've been closed for the last nine months in that we're like, whoa, I was in a, I was in a much different place than I thought I was because we slowly eased into it over a long time. And then once we start getting out, we look back and be like, what was I? And we've all had those experiences. We're like, what was I thinking? Like, it seemed to make sense at the time, but looking back, I would never have done that again. And I, I think there's going to be a fair amount of that. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a fair prediction. I think we'll definitely see a lot of that. So, yeah. So I think that that, that, pretty much covers my thoughts about the pandemic. Do you have anything else? No, uh, I, I don't. But again, I mean, this is going to be what's going to, the pandemic, when we even talk about, uh, and when we get to the end, we talk about the books that we've read. Even that, the pandemic is going to somewhat have been shaping the way we've been reading the things we've been reading. So we can't leave it behind. It keeps, like sure. Faulkner said, the past is not dead. It's not even past. <laughs> so COVID is not past. For sure. But I think that that moves uh, us into sort of the second thing we wanted to talk about, which I definitely think uh, animated a lot of what I saw coming into basically the, the election season. Um, so I think it really covers that, that late spring through the summer, through the early fall, which was the, the effects and the, the um, impact of uh, the death of George Floyd uh, on May 25th. I believe that's uh, the right day. Uh, yeah, May 25th. Um, we saw immediately after that uh, many uh, demonstrations across the country in all in all cities everywhere, um, uh, huge gatherings of people. Um, it, it, I think your your point about the, the backdrop of COVID. I think you know seeing not just huge groups of people uh, marching in the street. Something that many people were told, you know, don't do this uh, during a pandemic. Um, but you know seeing those demonstrations and then seeing everyone wearing masks and seeing people, um, you know, it just was a very surreal experience. Um, and then I think a lot of people remember also, or at least heavy on our hearts was um, the June 1st specific DC demonstration. Um, a lot of people might remember on that day, that was the, uh, the day that uh, President Trump uh, made the uh, photo shoot or photo op in front of uh, the church that had been lit on fire or, or had accidentally gone on fire. I, I, the details to me are still a little fuzzy, but um, a lot of people remember that photo of, of Donald Trump standing there with the Bible uh, in front of the, the church. And I think there was a lot of, I think that sort of sets the stage for what we'll talk about next. But, you know, we did a, we did an episode about the George Floyd death, uh, what we had, you know, what we saw, um, what our reaction was to it. Um, and then I think you saw from there on, I think you, or at least we saw um, the way that the, the social justice and the racial justice movement really affected a lot of things, including sports, including um, how we thought about the pandemic, how we thought about the election. And so my, I guess my next question is sort of the same as the first, first question about the pandemic, which is, what do you remember from those, those days? And then how did you see sort of your own views change or how you saw 
the after effects of that event. I think COVID created a context in which the um, racial uh, problems in this country, the as as triggered. Not, I mean, it goes way back, right? But triggered by the death of George Floyd. Um, it brought it much closer to home for all of us, I think, than it has been for most of our lifetimes. And it, uh, there was an attention paid to it and a focus on it that I don't think I've ever had to, um, had to give it. And there's a lot of good that, that comes from that. I mean, there's a lot of good that comes from having to think, wrestle through and reconcile um, with, uh, with a, a painful part and a dark part of American history and even American present, uh, you know, how has that affected things that my grace downtown where I'm going has been doing um, these kind of uh, Saturday gatherings once every other month. And we read just mercy by Brian Stevenson. And then we just read the color of law by Richard Rothstein. And we discussed that, that uh, the color of law was a very uh, eye-opening enlightening book, uh, a painful book to read in many ways. Um, I think that, uh, and as we know, a lot of churches have like approached groups like uh, Institute for Cross-Cultural Missions uh, uh, that's headed up by Erwin Entz because they they sense the need for their churches to address these issues. There is, I think through this and um, a reinforced emphasis placed on listening to people. And so listening to why uh, people are upset and, and hearing that and then asking honestly and assessing what can I do and what, what is the right thing for me to do. I think the sad part, and this has probably come from people being separated from their churches back and, and stuck at home, is some people are saying, you know, my church is too much on the woke train or my church is not enough on the social justice train. And I want to leave my church for that. I think that there's been some sad fallout for churches as well there uh, when to trust that pastors are doing their best, but also to hear that um, their congregants aren't pleased with their efforts. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Um, I thought that what was really, I, I guess I should say this, what I thought was really interesting uh, after the the death of George Floyd and the and the um, demonstrations that happened afterwards, um, and, and they kept going on. And I, I remember there was you know what was kind of crazy was in the middle of those demonstrations we had other cases of um, uh, police brutality and and uh, uh, deaths of unarmed uh, black men and women. I think Breonna Taylor's case I think was another big one that people focused attention on as well. And um, I think what was what I, at least for the first time in my life, it, in witnessing one of these uh, events, um, I think empathy and, and sympathy and understanding, especially by uh, folks who had not really been either supportive or really even understanding of, of some of the prior demonstrations, I, I think that understanding was, was very high from that group of people immediately the George Floyd death. I, I saw a lot more people that I, that I had seen more hostile towards um, the, the matters of, uh, let's just, for a very broad term, racial reconciliation and things like that, um, much more willing. And I, I kind of sum it up by this. I, I remember I saw a lot of people who had said, no, all lives matter. 
uh, and then after the George Floyd death, we're, we're sort of more on the, on the understanding side of, okay, I understand now why we say Black Lives Matter. I, I understand why that's your uh, position. And so uh, I thought that was really interesting. I think that's significant. Um, I think, unfortunately, and another sad part of this whole thing that I saw was that um, uh, the, there was sort of a uh, broad, let's just call it, disregard in the especially in the media that's really where i'm focusing this critique um to denounce the the more violent aspects of some of the demonstrations especially property damage and and not the the willingness to really say and call it for what it was um and i think unfortunately what we saw was a lot of that goodwill that was that was built up initially sort of squandered um later on and i think i think i'm okay saying that i think that that's that's what what really what i witnessed um, for better or for worse. And yeah, and then I, I really saw the, in, the effect of the George Floyd death really kickstarted a lot of other things that weren't really connected, but were connected only in the, in the idea of sort of racial or social justice. And so, you know, this year is the year that we had uh, the Washington Redskins have an official cha- name change, uh, something that's been lobbied for years that has really never gone anywhere. And then this year was done away with. Um, we had mass demonstrations amongst athletes of every sport, uh, basketball, hockey, football, baseball. Uh, it was everywhere. Um, something we had only really seen in football until the time. What, well, what about what, uh, the NASCAR? Yeah. And then, oh, yeah. Who can even forget about uh, uh, what happened in NASCAR with the, the whole noose or was it, was it a pull down or was it a noose? Yeah, it was not. Scandal? It, was, it, was not it was not, a, in fact, a scandal. You're right. And, uh, and then, but, uh, but even though it wasn't, there was an impressive amount of solidarity fostered. Right. In, in, in a sport that is, that is mostly uh, denounced as uh, overwhelmingly racist and, and, you know, all these kind of things. And then, you know, just this past uh, week, uh, the announcement from the Cleveland Indians that, that they're going to change their name. So I think that there's just a, we're sort of still in that snowball effect, right? Where, we're still sort of seeing where this thing's going to go, where it's going to land. Um, I think that there's absolutely been some overreaching uh, in many areas, in many ways. And I, with it, many proponents of like identity politics really use it as an opportunity to sort of infiltrate uh, institutions, I think was something that we saw that, you know, was a little disconcerting. And I think we saw a lot of people push back against that. Um, so it'll be kind of just interesting to see where the, the movement bounces out, where it finds, um, a foothold and then where it will continue to move into uh, in the later in the later years. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting, just uh, maybe as an aside while we're talking, because this year has so much has happened, and yet everything has kind of felt smashed together. There's, um, it's almost hard to forget about a lot of the stuff that has happened this year. I mean, I think in other years past, there could have been major events like, oh, yeah, I forgot that happened. Well, with, with 2020 and the restrictions placed on us and the limited mobility to, and, and, and freedom to get around, it kind of makes all of these uh, events just slammed into the forefront of our memories and, and they can't really go anywhere. So it's just kind of interesting to think that uh, I probably haven't forgotten as many of the major news stories this year as I would in past years. And there's something actually unfortunate about that, I think, um, and that there's, there's less life lived in other areas. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of truth there. I think that um, 
because we've basically sat around at home and, and watched the news or spent time on social media or uh, the internet, we, we are a little bit more ingrained in what's going on. Um, unfortunately, I think that what the pandemic offered or allowed was a lot of people to sit at home and write think pieces about all sorts of things. And unfortunately there were too many and many that should not have been published. And um, I think that that moves us, that's a good segue uh, into the last thing I think we want to talk about in terms of 2020, which um, you said the pandemic was the thing that's really behind and and sort of the the background of everything. Um, That's an interesting observation. I see it, my, my reaction is to say, or at least maybe the way that I perceive things was that the 2020 election was the one that was the thing that was really animating a lot. I, and maybe that's just the cynic in me, I don't know, that you know, saw a lot of the, the responses to, especially the pandemic, uh, as animated by more political uh, mm-hmm. reasoning than public health reasoning. But, and there's a debate to be had there, but uh, I think the 2020 election, I think we have to you know, talk about it because it was such a, a formative moment kind of almost like a capstone to the year. I think a lot, in a lot of ways, it was sort of the culmination of what people were uh, preparing for, who's going to be president uh, next year. And um, there was a lot of buildup uh, with the Democratic primaries that were incredibly contentious. Um, very interesting to see that you know, uh, Joe Biden was the one that, that came out uh, of that primary season. And then we got the most interesting presidential debate I've ever witnessed. Um, something that, you know, I've never seen before. And I don't know if we'll ever really see again, just because of the response to it. And then, um, we had a crazy election, uh, you know, maybe people who really witnessed the 2000 election don't really see it as that unprecedented, but at least in my life, I've never really seen anything like that. And so to see an election not called for weeks, you know, for days and weeks, um, was, was different and definitely, I think is going to have a formative, uh, effect on the people as we enter the uh, first year of the, the Joe Biden presidency. And so um, let, let's just sort of kick it off like we've done with the last two. So what were you thinking about the 2020 election as we went in? Did you have an idea of who you thought was going to win? Did that, did that pan out or not? And what do you think the effects of this, this type of election is going to have on us as we enter the first year of the Biden administration? Well, the year started with a ton of momentum and anticipation, excitement. Twenty twenty started with most people saying like Trump is going to get reelected. There's no way that he doesn't get reelected. I mean, uh, the economy is too good. People are already knew uh, know what they knew already. Like, there's not a bunch of new stuff that has come out about him uh, that we're waiting on. Um, it seemed pretty certain that he was going to win in 2020. So the question is, who's the best person that the Democrats can put up? So you have this huge Democratic field that comes out in these debates, and it's really exciting. And then right as things are about to ramp up full speed, COVID hits. And for a a little bit, the Democratic primaries, like, when they were coming, like, didn't matter. They weren't going to be that important. It wasn't something that was really concerned. It was kind of like, COVID was so intense at first, and I was refreshing that Johns Hopkins page that was tallying the effect, uh, infection rates around the world, that I wasn't paying attention anymore to, to the 2020 election as a thing. 
And then it's interesting that it did kind of do a U uh, curve and that it, you know, was high and then went down and then eventually picked back up obviously and reached fever pitch as we come to the close of this year, especially in the weeks leading up to the election. But that was one of the more interesting parts of the, of the 2020 election was that uh, it, it didn't have a steady ramp up like would be normal in an election year. It was there and then it was just gone and it wasn't, uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't top of mind for most people like it would have been in other situations. And then uh, you, have, you have candidates other than Joe Biden winning primaries. And then out of nowhere, Biden wins South Carolina and all of a sudden he's the nominee and people are suggesting that, well, phone calls were made behind the scenes to get people to drop out in order to create a coalition around him. And just this past week, uh, we know that um, Pete Buttigieg has been uh, tapped for uh, transportation secretary. So uh, that, that was correct. And I was actually thinking, you know, it'd be kind of funny uh, in 2024 to play a game where you have a bingo or you have a, a, a chart and you say, okay, who's going to be most insulting to the eventual president and then end up getting which cabinet <laughs> position? Because that's just the way it goes. So who's going to get what based on right. um, how, how much they insulted the the one who actually gets the nomination. That's funny. Yeah, it was, um, I think I have basically the same take as you do. Like I definitely came into the year thinking there's really, I just can't see a way that um, Joe Biden uh, or that, it, that the Democrats pull it out. I, it Any just, candidate. I, yeah. I just didn't think that it was possible. Um, and I, I, I kind of thought like, Oh, this is going to be uh, that year. I think, I think it was 2012. Wasn't it 2012 where, there were like a million and a half Republican candidates. And uh, it's a over- slight exaggeration, but yeah. there were a lot. Well, 2016. There were yeah, years. that's true. But like, it was going to be kind of that year where it was, you know, Obama was strong. You, you knew he was probably going to pull it out. And then um, you just had a bunch of different Republicans uh, jockeying for who was going to get that, who was going to get that spot that wasn't really going to win, but was going to be teed up for 2016. And that's what I kind of felt like 2020 was going to be for the Democrats. It was going to be who's, who's the successor and who's going to not necessarily win 2020, but is prepared for 2024. So I really did think that it was going to be um, somebody far more progressive, somebody far more, uh, far younger, um, sort of the, you know, a darling of the Democratic Party. I think that's why a lot of people at the very beginning really were drawn to Pete Buttigieg um, because he sort of represented that, that new Democratic Party. Um, and then the pandemic hit. And then it real, the, I think the Democrats smelled blood in the water and really realized that there was an opening here, um, that they didn't think that the, the president was leading well uh, in terms of the pandemic. Uh, they didn't think he had handled um, uh, the George Floyd protests well. And so I think that they increasingly saw an opening and, and it really became who's, who's the one that can beat Trump. And the Democrats chose Joe Biden and it turns out they chose wisely. Uh, and so, it, it, and what, what's, what's fascinating is we went from having an election that we thought was really, you know, look at this, look at this President Trump who's so different than any Republican we've ever had. Look at this, uh, you know, look at this democratic field. We could really get a super progressive, somebody that represents a new democratic party, really sort of teeing up the new age of American politics. And what we end up getting was an election between, you know, two 70 year olds. And so uh, just a really fascinating development, I think, in terms of a, a presidential election. I am 
very, uh, I'll say concerned about what the effects of the, uh, the way the election was handled and then how it was um, uh, managed in the days after um, and what those effects are going to be for folks living under a Biden administration. You know, I, I think there, was a, there were a lot of people who jokingly teased um, the Democrats uh, in 2016 who said, Donald Trump is not my president. Um, and there were a lot of people who sort of teased them for that. And, and, and uh, it was sort of thought of as silly or not very serious. I think we're going to come into 2021 and you're going to see a lot of people who take that Joe Biden is not my president, deathly serious. Um, people who treat that as very, uh, as part of a core part of their identity as a, as a uh, voter, as a citizen, as a, as a, um, uh, a Republican. And I, I think that's going to have huge effects for what the, the future of the Republican Party looks like going forward and really what uh, the Biden administration is going to be able to do uh, in terms of an agenda. Uh, because I think you're going to have, he's got a Republican Senate uh, that he's going to have to deal with. Um, and I think that that Senate is going to be really beholden to what uh, many in the base think was a stolen election. And so I think you're going to have to, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. No, no doubt. And we're coming up um, just over a month away until we have the inauguration of the new president of the United States. The 46th president of the United States is just about to take place in, in a short time. And um, past weekend, as we know, there was the Jericho Road March up here in D.C. That was it Jericho I, Road? I thought it was just called Jericho March. Well, it could be. It was called something. Jericho, something Jericho. Jericho was involved. Um, well, that's, a, that, that's an interesting point to bring up because I think another thing I wanted to, to talk about was you know, especially at the beginning of that, you know, the, you know, the weeks leading up to the election and then afterwards in the election, you know, I think for four years, people in evangelical circles have stewed on that 81% number. Um, what does it mean that 81% of evangelicals voted for this man, Donald Trump? Uh, and there was a lot of hand wringing about it. I think we kind of really spent four years discussing that issue. And I think what we really came down to at the end of the day was, there was a sort of a, a mass agreement that the term evangelical really didn't mean anything anymore. Um, because once you broke that number down, I think in a lot of what Thomas Kidd did, uh, which when you break that number down, you realize that it's, it represents a huge swath of theological beliefs and, and viewpoints. Um, it doesn't really account for Donald Trump's Catholic support, which does, you know, it's interest is also a, a whole nother facet that we needed that needed to be examined. And so um, I, I think, uh, we spent really four years talking about that. And then there was a lot of energy coming into the election by certain evangelical groups that were spending a lot of money to try to sway evangelicals to not vote for Trump. Um, and then you, that's, I think, when you, it, you started to see for the first time in, in real time, people using that, that sort of boogie word, Christian nationalism. Um, and I think uh, there were a lot of people about, you know, the church is, is moving into this, into this Christian nationalist phase. And then just this past week, we have the Jericho March, and, uh, which was all levels crazy. And um, you get a real hard backlash to that in the past couple, couple of days about Christian nationalism. So, you know, what does that debate mean to you? Like, what, what, do you, what do you think of 
or, or I guess, what, how are you perceiving the debate? Well, about Christian nationalism or the people who vote for Trump? Well, I think it's related because I think there's not a lot of hard lines being drawn or like maybe definitions aren't quite shored up yet because I, I can't really tell the difference sometimes when I'm, when I'm interacting with people's articles or tweets that, you know, do they mean everyone who voted for Trump is a Christian nationalist because Trump's agenda is inherently Christian nationalist? Or are they saying, or is there a difference between the two? Like what's going on? That's kind of what I think the debates, or I think that's what the, the conversation is right now. Yeah. Um, well, starting with the Christian nationalism, one of the issues you and I have talked about in the past that can be really difficult is coming around to a clear and precise definition of what people mean by Christian nationalism. Sometimes when people say Christian nationalism, it seems that they mean something along the lines of when people expect for the policies of this country to reflect their faith or something like that. And it's like, well, that's not very problematic. Everybody does that. There's no one out there who doesn't vote or uh, put forth, you know, want a policy or a, a candidate that is best in line with what they think is best for the world. Like that's just how it always goes. Uh, now, if they mean something along the lines of the status and future of one's nation is uh, conjoined with their faith and the vitality of that faith, um, and that as goes the country, so goes the faith, then that is certainly a, a belief system that is false. I mean, it's absolutely heretical. Uh, our kingdom is not of this world that we are a part of. So that's clearly, and if that's the type of Christian nationalism that people are speaking of, um, then yeah, I have uh, a problem with it. But I don't really know. And then I think... Um, I think one of the trip ups that happen with people when voting for either side, when they say, you know, 81% of evangelicals voted for Christian nationalists, therefore, I voted for Donald Trump, therefore, you know, they're in favor of Christian nationalism. I kind of want to be like, well, what exactly are you saying? Are you, are you saying that how someone votes is reflective of how legitimate their faith is? That seems to be the exact, you're doing exactly what you're accusing them of doing by saying that they must vote in a certain way in order for their faith to be proved legitimate. Um, and I don't think that's a path that people want to go down. So uh, it is one of those kind of like uh, um, you can be a pseudo intellectual and use it. I mean, there are people who use it well and thoughtfully and carefully, and that's great. Most people don't. And it's very hard to know exactly what is meant here. And we've talked about this before and I, a lot of smart people out there that uh, love of one's country, love of where one is from, love and the vitality and flourishing of one's place uh, is a good thing. I am not a citizen of the world. Whatever that means, I am not that. I am a citizen of the United States of America. People are citizens of Germany and China and Mexico. Uh, and they, we should want the best in our particular place. Does that come before my faith in Jesus? No, not at all. Not in any way. And they're not even, they can be competing with each other. Yes, but they are not necessarily in competition with one another. I, uh, I can vote in an American election. I cannot vote in a Mexican election. So uh, am I more concerned about the health and vitality of America than Mexico? 
yeah, <laughs> but I, it seems like quixotic to not be to like, yeah. why, what's the point of going chasing after windmills like that? I mean, yeah, silly. You, you make a very, very good point. I, I think you're, you're totally on, on point. Um, unfortunately I think a lot of this stems from uh two really things that I see there's this weird like what you just talked about about how saying your love of country can can exist out you know not in competition with your love for Christ and and his his church um I I think as evangelicals or or you can just say generally speaking Protestants um we have a we we don't do a very good job of talking about ordered loves of, of being able to order your loves um, I think we tend to sort of be, you know, uh, uh, it's either, it's either something or nothing. And, and unfortunately what that ends up doing is it sort of creates this, um, Jedi like detachment, uh, to everything worldly. Uh, and the problem with that is that the Jedi are weird. Um, they are, uh, uh, strange people because they don't have any attachment. And that's, that's kind of one of the critiques of them throughout the, at least, if you watch the original trilogy, not to get into a, a Star Wars uh, nerd fandom thing yeah, here. Yeah, let's walk it back, nerd. Yeah, but that's that's sort of the point. My, my, I only say this to say that I find that that view very, let's say, at odds with Reformed theology, which really does hold a strong view of creation and what what God called good. Um, and I, that's not a it's not a defensive saying. I'm not saying that God created the United States and called it good. Uh, that, that's not found in Genesis. I'm not trying to say that. But what I am trying to say is that um, there's a reason why we do feel attached to our homes, why we feel attached to our place, why we feel attached to our neighbors, and why we feel concerned for them. Um, it's the reason why we all felt collectively as a nation attacked during 9-11, even though a, a huge majority of us did not experience 9-11 directly. And so um, I, I think we need to be realistic about how we are attached to one another as neighbors and citizens. Um, and being care you know caring for them in terms of how we want the law to look and reflect and um is not christian nationalism um that is that is simply a a means of living out our faith uh, in every area of our life including politics um and i i I can't really see um and and my point there is to say that that's where i find most people when i talk to them one-on-one about this issue you know their their position is I love my country. I love the United States. You know, we pray for the president uh, it, during our church service. And then it, 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 you know, well, would you, would you rather have America or the church? And, you know, every one of them will say, no, no, no the church, of course, of course. You know, it, it's, it's so intuitive in people's minds. Um, but it, I think it, it takes some time to unpack and get, get people there. And when you, when you get them there, you realize that it's really maybe not as an issue as possible. I, I know, or as, as we think, I know that, um, you know, uh, the big tweet that came out about this this past week was was Beth Moore uh, had a tweet saying that Christian nationalism is, or I, I think she said Trumpism is, the greatest, you know, mo- most seductive threat to the church right now. And um, no, in in her sixty three and a half years of life. Yes, that's right. That's right. Thank you. Um, and I think the reason why I initially approached that statement as so problematic um, is that it's not that. Trumpism, or what I think she really means, Christian nationalism, uh, is a threat. I, I think it is. It's the the there. It's the it's the thing. And um, I don't know if we can quite diagnose what's going on at, at things like the Jericho March until we're willing to acknowledge that Trump might be a symptom of more deeper 
older, more seductive uh, threats to the church, like commercialism, consumerism, individualism, you know, and, and, and those are things that the church has been fighting since the early days. And so the fact that it's still around today, um, I think might be, a, might be an indicator that, you know, those are sort of the things that maybe we need to really focus our attention on going forward. Yeah, the dangerous form of Christian nationalism that we gave a definition of previously, um, as embodied by Trumpism, is certainly an issue. It is, it is not a healthy or safe good thing. But like you said, to, to put the definite article that it is the biggest concern of her life, um, I mean, if that's the case, you have to ask, why haven't you been writing books about this before? Like, why is this just now something that, uh, and also, uh, like you mentioned, there are a lot of other bigger issues out there. I really think facing the church, I don't think that most of the church struggles with Christian nationalism. I, I think that individualism and consumerism, pride, works, righteousness, layers of indulgence, those are much more dangerous uh, to the church. The me and my Bible mentality is more dangerous to the church. Uh, the privatized faith, um, the lack of, under, I mean, there are, there are a number of things. So, you know, we could go on and on, but I, people are jumping on this. And again, it's, it's what I said a second ago, the Christian nationalism can be a, a sexy thing to, to lambast and come out against because you don't actually really have to define it specifically. You just throw it out there and label something as that and are kind of a quasi pseudo intellectual um, and then can feel good that you fought something when it's like, I mean, I don't know. I don't think I, I, I just don't see it. Yeah. Uh, that, that way. Yeah. I think, I think that's a, that's well said. Um, so that'll definitely be something I think, which animates uh, the coming, the coming year. I, I'm really interested to see how conversations of, you know, uh, Christians who wed their faith to politics, how that conversation um, plays itself out uh, under a new administration uh, that's going to have different policy objectives um, and have, and have many Christians who voted for that president and um, uh, are going to defend, or, or I guess I should say, who support a lot of these, a lot of his policy agenda. And so I'll just be interested to see how that conversation plays itself, plays itself out going uh, into 2021. Um, but I, I think, that's a pretty good recap of 2020. I, I think those were the big three things, the pandemic, uh, the George Floyd death and, and subsequent demonstrations, and then uh, uh, the, the 2020 election really did uh, animate most of 2020. Um, I can't really think of anything that big anything big that happened that didn't really um, touch either of those things. Um, and so uh, I think now I, we should move into some more fun, more lighthearted, and, and good news, uh, which is that 2020 was also a year of very good reading. Uh, Will and I both read some very great books. Um, and so we wanted to break down our top five uh, books that we read this, tw uh, this year, um, hopefully give some good recommendations for you all. Um, a, a full disclosure, my list is going to be very colored by the fact that I am in seminary. And so um, unfortunately I will be subscribing or I will be uh, uh, recommending a couple seminary textbooks so just keep that uh, in the back of your mind. Um, Will, you read a lot of books this year. You are a very voracious reader. Um, so tell us, what were your top five books of 2020? Picking a top five is really, really difficult. And I, 
I will choose five, but I'll, I'll probably regret that I didn't add in a couple or replace them with different ones. I'll start with my favorite work of fiction. I did go into Harry Potter this year, but I think the best work of fiction that I was most impressed with this year was Salman Rushdie's book, Midnight Children, which is something of like a mythological retelling of the um, birth of India, when India becomes its own country. Uh, Rushdie is a phenomenal storyteller and writer. He is colorful. Um, It is a blend of uh, not quite historical fiction and maybe in some ways a little genre bending, but it was a wonderful world to, to read into and um, thought it was absolutely brilliant. In terms of political reading, I think the book that maybe I um, found most helpful in understanding American, um, the American context today, um, both with the rise of Trump um, and the struggle that America is facing right now internally was Francis Fukuyama's book, Identity. Um, the subtitle is The Demanded Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. And one of the things that has really jumped out at, in my mind a lot when I think about this story, or this book, is the, um, the idea that for countries to exist, it is essential that there is a unified story of peoplehood that, that explains who they are, where they came from, and then where they're going. In America, in this uh, place, we're really, really wrestling with that. There's some major uh, war, warring going on over what is going to be the dominant narrative for us as a country. In terms of history, just kind of like pop fun history, um, H.W. Brands, who is a professor at, I'll say it, University of Texas, Boo. I know that hurts uh, you as an Aggie. It hurts me as an Aggie. He's a great historian, really wonderful writer. He wrote a book called Dreams of El Dorado, The Settling uh, a History of the American West. It, it's just a, it, everything from um, uh, Lewis and Clark to Oregon Trail to uh, the gold rush in California, the settling of Texas, wonderful cast of characters that occur. He does a really great job bringing in a lot of like um, primary sources and uh, journal entries that people had and really tells a story through a lot of individual eyes there. And then for like cultural uh, theology, for understanding where we are, no Place for Truth or What Happened to Evangelical Theology by David Wells. A couple of weeks ago, Wells was featured in a very long Gospel Coalition article as uh, a thinker who has really in, informed people like Kevin DeYoung, Mark Dever. He has been behind them a lot in his um, analysis and explanation of where we are as, um, as the American church. And this... Uh, this book, um, what No Place for Truth, just does, and it's actually part of a uh, a four part series that is pulled together in kind of um, more of a digest in the Courage to Be Protestant. But he does um, a lot to explain how we got where we are with our view of theology in this country. And then I got to choose one more here. And, I, and I'll and i choose this one because it has been a book. Oh, well, 
I'll just say this. I think I'll just say, yeah, this one is um, Gentle and Lowly by Gavin Ortland, which is a just a beautiful pastoral theology book uh, about the heart of Jesus and his love for his people and the comfort that comes from knowing him. And I'm already regretting that I didn't mention others, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put those five up. Awesome. I think those are great. Um, I'm excited to uh, dig into a couple of them. You've, you've recommended them uh, before and uh, I'm excited to get into them. Um, my, my top five, uh, like I said, is very much animated by the fact that I'm in seminary and so I don't get a lot of opportunity to pick my reading most of the time. Um, so, uh, but I did read two that I think a lot of people could find interesting, um, especially if you were in sort of that, that weird theology uh, 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 sort of thing. Um, uh, one was called Paul and the Person by Susan Eastman. Um, it was a really interesting look at, at what Paul means, uh, or I guess, what is Paul's understanding of personhood? Uh, and how does it maybe, uh, uh, how is it maybe at odds with uh, the American idea of personhood, or maybe just a Western or enlightened enlightenment version of personhood. And so uh, I thought that was, that was really fascinating. Uh, along with it was um, the doctrine of God by Christopher Kaiser. And uh, the doctrine of God is really a historical survey of what um, the church has believed about who God is. Um, and it really tells a story uh, very interestingly of uh, how it went from really who God is to what God is uh, back to, again to who God is again. And so I, I think it's really interesting how it's still um, uh, some of the, the work that was done uh, in the early church, especially in the, the medieval age, how it colors uh, what many evangelicals today think about uh, who God is. Um, often if you ask somebody who, who is God, uh, they're really quick to list off a bunch of attributes um, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's um, all these different things. And I, I think um, what, what Christopher Kaiser does is kind of show the story of how a lot of reformers uh, would go back to those and say, well, let's really see who God is in the scriptures. Um, and we don't really find a list of attributes as much as we find a God who's personal, who is, is active in events and, and is uh, active in creation. And so um, it's a good, it's a good survey for anybody who's interested in that sort of long debate of is the transcendent versus the imminent. So I'd recommend that. Um, I also had a, a great book that I read this year when it comes to American history, something that I think does a good job of, of telling a story that's not often told about where we are as a nation, uh, when it comes to, uh, issues of conservatives versus liberals. And that was, uh, the age of entitlement. Um, I already love, it's by Christopher Caldwell, um, I already love the 60s. I find the 60s a, just a fascinating time to study. Uh, I wrote my, my thesis in college on JFK assassination theories. Uh, and so I, I just love that uh, time period. And so Caldwell really t starts in the 60s um, and a lot of the, uh, the social change that was happening and um, how it was so different than anything that had come before it uh, and the, the effects of, of that on um, the nation uh, long-term. And so I, I, I think it's, it's definitely controversial in the sense that uh, it's going to uh, tell a story that maybe you've not heard uh, in history class before, uh, but I think it's an important, it's very well written. It's incredibly well-researched. Um, and so I think it, it does offer a different perspective that I think is, is worthwhile, ha worth having, um, especially as we approach issues of Trumpism and, and what that looks like going forward.
the the next book that I'm gonna I'm gonna say is uh, actually one that you recommended to me. It's also by Salman Rushdie, and that's Harun in the Sea of Stories. We did a whole episode about it uh, when I think way back in kind of when the pandemic had started, I think. But it, it was such a lovely story. It, it is a it's a kid, it's a written it's a book written for children, um, but there is so much there to unpack uh, for any reader. Um, it really is a lovely and colorful and fun story. And I think, especially for folks, even though Salman Rushdie is not a Christian, I think for folks who come from a reformed background and the idea of the, the biblical narrative and the idea of storytelling um, uh, in scripture is really important and is a major theme of this book. And so I think a lot of people uh, will enjoy it. And then uh, the last book that I read that I was, I was really excited about was really a work of, of political theology. I think it's, it's done a good job of sort of laying the foundation for me um, as, you know, what do I believe uh, the, the scripture says about my relation to the state, uh, about, about law. And that was uh, Christ in the Kingdoms of Men by David C. Enns. And um, I think anybody who just wants sort of a quick primer on, you know, what is political theology? How should I be thinking about it? Uh, especially in an American context would do well to read this book. Um, you might not agree with everything. There's certainly a ton more to discuss um, and, and go into, but it, it really does give that um, introduction to a very complicated topic, and a topic that I think we're going to see a ton of work uh, put into over the next uh, few years. I think we're going to see a lot of scholars spend time uh, either reshaping or, or really maybe rediscovering uh, what, is it, what does it mean to have a Protestant political theology. So that's my top five. Will, anything else that you want to talk about in the 2020 review before we get out of here? Because this is our last episode of the year, and we will be back uh, in January. So it's now or never. I don't have anything else. No, nothing to add. Um, well, that's great. I, I, think I, I think it's worth saying right now that, you know, another thing, with, uh, I, I guess I would just say this. 2020 has been an incredibly hard year for many. Um, it's been uh, a very chaotic year. But um, we, I know – I can speak for Will too, that we're really, really thankful to be doing this show. And we're extremely thankful for our listeners um, who tuned in week after week to hear a couple hot takes from uh, two dudes from ministry to state. Uh, we're really excited about what the future of this show has in store and what we get to do uh, in the, the coming year. Um, so please stick with us. Um, what we'll, I think we have a lot of plans and, and hopes and dreams and aspirations for this show that we'll be working on um, and we're excited to share with you eventually at some point um, um, but for now uh, just remember to follow us on Twitter I'm at Artie Hassel Will's at Stockdale Will make sure to visit Ministry State at ministryofstate.org and we will see you guys again next year <laughs> <laughs>